Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to open the word and to see what you'd have us to show, see, and I ask you to guide and lead us as we go through this. In your son's name, amen. Ezekiel chapter 23, we're going to start at verse 28. We're continuing the discussion from God against Israel, which he described, if we remember the first section, he described Samaria as the, or the northern kingdom as the, as a sister that was committing uh, whoredoms and and uh, all of that and adultery and and then he went on to say Israel is following in that suit and we're going to continue the diatribe against Israel in this section so 28 for thus saith the Lord God behold I will deliver you into the hand of them whom you hate into the hand of them whom your mind is alienated and they shall deal with you hatefully and shall take away your labor and they shall leave you naked and bare, and, na- and the nakedness of your whoredom shall be discovered, both your lewdness and your whoredoms. And I will do these things unto you, because you have gone a whoring un- after the heathen, and because you have polluted, are polluted with their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will give her cup into your hand. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. He says, I will deliver you into the hand of them that hate, they, of of them who you hate and into the hand of them from whom your mind is alienated. This is kind of an interesting statement that he makes. Those that you despise the most, I'm going to put you into their hand. And you know, God does this even to this day. If you start disobeying him, you usually end up facing whatever you most dread. And you know, we look at this and we see it happening over and over. I, I fear this, and all of a sudden you find yourself being dumped into just that fear. And it says, and, and into the hand of those whose, whom your mind is alienated. And this word for alienated literally has the idea of um, being totally separated from. You know, you're being totally separated from them. You can't even, you're not even thinking in the same terms. You're, you're alienated. Uh, if we think about somebody that you're alienated from, you don't want to be around them. You don't like them. You don't, usually you don't think about them unless you come anywhere near them. And he says, I'm going to send you into that. And your mind, your, your soul, your life, your, the seat of your emotion is going to be with those that you cannot handle. And this is, when God moves against somebody, it is pretty severe. And I've watched this over the years. When God moves against something or somebody, it almost seems like he's being too harsh, at least in my mindset. And because I don't like the idea of seeing anybody hurt, and yet I've seen people being totally destroyed. Their lives be destroyed, their, their families be destroyed, their health be destroyed, whatever it might be, when God moves bad things happen and we see this even in the book of revelation where the where the church is taken out and you have the the seven seals the seven trumpets and the seven bowls god moves and 60 percent of the 66 percent of this world will be destroyed 66 percent of the population that just on what he tells us will be killed to me that seems pretty severe and yet that god knows what it takes to get the attention of people and sometimes, you know, it takes a lot to get people's attention. 
And we have all heard the testimonies from people, you know, I was the head of the, some business or a company and then I got full of myself and I got drunk and everything and I hit rock bottom and God finally got hold of me. Maybe that's what it, that was exactly what it took for them to get God to get a hold of them was to lose everything. And you go, God, wasn't there some other, some other way you could do this? Yeah, apparently not. Otherwise, he would do it. If there was another way, he would do the other way. And yet, it, you look at it and it seems like it's such a harsh move. And I guess in many senses it is harsh, but God knows it's what we need. And this is why I keep telling us every time we think something bad is happening in our life, it's God's doing just what we need to get our attention or to teach us whether we believe him or not or whatever it might be. He's doing just what he needs to do. And if there was an easier way to do it, he would have used it. <laughs> but most of us are pretty hard-headed and we need to learn things the hard way and God knows that as well. He says, they shall deal with you hatefully and take away your labor and, you sh and shall leave you naked and bare and, and the nakedness of your whoredoms shall be discovered, both your lewdness and your whoredoms. He says, they shall deal with you hatefully. Well, Paul says to turn them over to, so that Satan can work them over, basically so Satan can work them over so they'll repent. And yeah, there's, this is what God is doing. It, it's what God's done all along. If you, won't, if you do not respond to his grace and his mercy, eventually he'll take the, the rod to you and, and beat you with the rod. And if you don't respond to that, he'll take your life, especially if you're his child. So we, as his children, need to learn to respond to grace. The more we will respond to his grace and mercy, the less we will have to go through hard trials. Uh, that, that is more the fact that bad things happen to good people, or technically good people. Uh, I've always said that in reality, the question isn't why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to all of us bad people? You know, because when something bad happens to us, we really cannot say, I don't deserve it. Now, theoretically, I mean, I hope you understand what I'm saying, that if something bad happens to me, I deserve it. Even if I'm not living in sin, I have lived in sin. My mind is living in sin. And if God opened my mind and my eyes to everything about me, I would see nothing but sin. So if anything bad happens to me, I truly deserve it. And I can't say I don't, and none of us can say that we don't. But God's mercy and his grace allows us to not have all the bad hit us that we deserve. Now, if he's dealing with us and we're not dealing with our sin, then he will definitely open up the floodgates and say, okay, I've been dealing with you. Now we're going to let you suffer the consequences. But for most of those events, I think it's more the fact that God is just saying bad things happen to my people as well as to the, to the non-Christian. Is it hard? Is it harsh? Is it a chance? It might be when something like that, a church van rolls over and kills a bunch of youth or kids. It's an opportunity for people to say God is sovereign and I'm going to trust God. And that's hard to do. That's very hard to do at times like that. And we live in a fallen world because of Adam and Eve's sin and, and because of the fallen nature that we live under, bad things happen. And 
the scriptures tell us the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. The, the evil falls on the just and the unjust. It's not just because we're Christians, does not, God does not put a big shield around us and say nothing, nothing bad is going to happen. In our day and age, theoretically, we all deserve nothing but death. Even when we come to Christ, we still have so much sin, so much sin in our hearts. And yes, God isn't revealing all of it. He isn't showing all of it, thank you, <laughs> thankfully. But you know, the closer you get to God, and this is something I've been, that I've learned and I've said before, the closer we draw to God and the more perfect we get our, our flesh, the more God will show us that there's more sin to deal with. And he just shines a brighter light in our life and he shows us, okay, there's more, more garbage in that filthy, ugly heart of yours. Go get it clean. Yeah, we're going to clean it out. And you clean that part out and he shines the light a little, little deeper, a little brighter, and there's more. And if he was to shine and open up the whole thing, it would probably even disgust us as human beings if we saw the total depravity of our heart at one time. So it's God's grace and mercy that he doesn't show us what he would see outside of the blood of Christ. But we really just keep in mind that anything happening to us we truly deserve. Even if there wasn't for the verses of the Bible where God says all things work together for good and I'm sovereign and I'm going to keep my people and those are the ones I grab hold of because God's got a plan. And his plan is to make things work for good whether it's my good or somebody else's good that I'm going to minister to down the road, but he teaches through everything that happens. Everything we do, as God reveals it to us, we will start seeing how sinful we are. And what's really hard is you work out all the big, quote-unquote, big sins out of your life, and you think, okay, I've got this all put together, and then God shines the light really deep. And you know, those big sins actually are easier to get rid of than a lot of the thought life and attitude life that he starts shining down into your heart because everybody knows when you violate the big thing. You know, if you go out and you, you know, commit adultery or, or fornication, there are other people at least that know what's going on. You lie, you steal, you do drugs, you do alcohol, whatever it might be, everybody knows or many people know it's, you can't hide them. Then God starts shining the light on your thought life. You know, your, your, your adulterous thoughts that you have that, you know, if I could get away with it, I would go do it, you know, and God says, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to shine the light on that. Or, you know, if I could just do this, I would do it, you know, and it's, and God starts taking out our thoughts and <laughs> cleanses them up. And then he just digs deeper and deeper and deeper because there's so much garbage in us. And this is the thing I'm finding. The more I correct in my life, the more there is to get rid of. I keep getting of isolated events. Are you feeling condemned or are you feeling convicted? If you feel condemned, it's from Satan. If you're feeling convicted, it's from God. God is always looking to convict us into repentance. Satan is trying to condemn us into silence and not doing anything for God. So if you're feeling condemned, it's not from God. If you're feeling convicted, then it's probably from God. Keep your list short. Don't wait long times before confession. But always remember that when you've made your confession, God's put it under the blood already. He doesn't expect us to name every single sin we've done because, number one, we don't know every sin we've done. We just don't have that capacity to know every sin we do because 
it goes back to what I was just saying. He shines the light deeper and deeper, and things that I thought were okay, all of a sudden later on will be shown to me to be not okay. And this is why I've so said many times, two people doing the same exact activity, one could be sinning and one may not be sinning. And I like to use cigarettes as one thing because there's nothing in the Bible that says you shall not smoke. So if somebody is smoking and God's not convicting them of, of quitting because he's working some other area of their life, then it's not a sin. But if God has said don't smoke and you're smoking, you're sinning. Okay? Uh, if somebody is drinking, not getting drunk, but drinking and God's not convicting them, then they're not sinning. But if God says you're not, you know, just told them they're not to drink, then they better not be drinking. Now, there are things, of course, that are sin. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. There's no way around those because those are directly thou shalt not. But for somebody, there's, there's not a thou shalt not drink. There's just a thou shalt not be drunk. There's not a thou shalt not smoke or thou shalt not gamble. You know, there's, there's all kinds of verses and principles that when God gets hold of you, you'll grab all of those verses and principles and say, okay, this, is, this now applies to me in this area of my life. And at that point, if you continue doing it, you're sinning. Because God has said, don't do it. Uh, and it's very critical that we look at these things and, and be aware that God is wanting to change us and to correct us. He wants us to be perfect. He wants us to be righteous. He wants us to be good examples of godly living to other people. And this is why certain things may not be sin, but they may not be good either. I've seen people who have lived together in the same home. And they'll tell everybody they're not doing anything, but everybody looking at them says, yeah, sure. You know, a man and a woman living in the same house, and you're going to tell me nothing is going on. And that's where the world looks at it. And they'll look at it and go, well, you're a Christian. How, how are you, why are you doing all this stuff? Even if it is pure. And I'm not going to judge it because it's between them and God. And but it says don't even have the appearance of sin. And some, at some point, God will say, stop doing this. Because it does tear apart a testimony before people. You want to be careful not to sin because sin does bring death anyway. I don't, I don't want to die because I'm sinning. When I go to heaven, I want to have as many rewards as I possibly can. I don't want to have God saying, oh, let's see, 20 years of your life, gone. You know, 10 years of your life, gone. Oh, you, oh we've got three, three days here where you did something good. Uh, okay, we'll reward you for three days. No, I don't want that to be my history when I get to you know, my, my testimony before God. But it is hard for us to live righteously because our flesh doesn't want to live righteously. And it is all grace besides that, because God is going to crucify our flesh. He's the one that's going to correct our behavior. All we have to do is let him do it. And the more you let him do it, the more he's going to take out of your life. The more you fight him, the more he wants to take out, but the more you know, he's, he's very much the gentleman. He's not going to sit there and, and beat you over the head with it. Now, he'll make your life difficult if you don't want to bend your will, but he's not going to make you by force change your life he'll let you turn away from it and there's been many things where on repeated occasions God has said are you ready to give this up and I'm going no I don't think so and then six months later are you ready to give this up yet no I don't think so and and then finally it's like I don't want to get rid of it I'm tired of this I want to get rid of it and the next thing you know it's gone and it wasn't that hard to get rid of once I had made the decision that yes I'm tired of it God took all desire away from it 
And the particular event that, that really registers my mind is not a sinful, you know, there's no sin involved in it other than the time it took away from my life. It took a lot of time away, but it wasn't a sinful event other than the time it took away from God. So we start understanding when God says, are you ready to change? And we finally say yes, and then we look at it and, and, you know, in the retrospect and say, I don't miss... I don't miss what I didn't want to give up, and I don't. And God has replaced it completely with His love and His life. And you know, we fight so long and so hard against change with God, and then you kind of look back at it almost regretfully. Man, why did I take so long to finally get here, God? You know, you you could have beat me over the head a lot sooner or something, God, because it's been a great reward to get this out. The more we can apply that, the easier it gets. And I'm, I'm getting better at changing. I don't, I don't take the years that I used to take. You know, I'm getting down to less than a month in most cases, and sometimes almost instantaneously where I'm going, okay, God, you're going to win anyway, so I'm going to give up. And I think that's just experience. When you give up enough times and God gets his way often enough and long enough, eventually you're just going to say, okay, God, you're going to win anywhere. I'm just going to give up. Help me give up now. <laughs> because he will win. And he called Abraham out and he stopped in Haran and for 20 years he eventually got Abraham to leave and continue his journey. It took him 20 years and Abraham probably regretted those 20 years in Haran after, for most of his life after that. Man, I wasted so many of my years staying there with dad when I was supposed to have left dad in Ur of Chaldees in the first place. So we want to just keep this going on forward on this. He says, and they shall deal with you hatefully. They shall take away your labor and you shall, and shall leave you naked and bare. This is a picture of being a vassal. Take away all of the stuff that they produce and, and leave them exposed and naked in their, in their life. And that's what happened to both the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom. And it says, And the, the nakedness of your whoredom shall be discovered, both your lewdness and your whoredoms, and this discovery means to be made open. Have you ever been in a place where your sin has been made, laid open to people? And God just says, okay, you're not going to change, and you know that it's sin? And he just bears it all to, for everybody to see. His children, he will not let his children sin. And we've seen this. You know, people, many evangelists and televangelists that, have gotten into sin or, or pastors that have gotten into adulterous relationships. God will be working with them for years to, to say, repent, correct this. And if they don't, it gets broadcast to their church, broadcast to the people who are following them, because God's going to say, and he says, be sure your sin will find you out. Those, those are back on TV, that's because of grace because of grace, they, they repented, they truly repented, and God's restored them, expressing God's grace toward him. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 of Daniel says, this is my kingdom, and God had already warned him that he was going to be, his mind was going to be taken away from him for seven years because of his pride. And yet, by God's grace, he kept the kingdom for Nebuchadnezzar and restored his mind after seven years and gave him back his kingdom. Because it's all grace. This is something that I've noticed amongst in churches where people get mad at somebody in the church and they leave the church. 
They've actually failed a big test probably because the test was, will you be Christ to that person? Will you be able to show forgiveness and kindness to that person? And instead, most people will run from a church and go to another church and have a problem with somebody in that church and run from that church and until they have a problem with somebody in that church and then go to another church or maybe come back to the first. You're taking your problems and God keeps testing you the same way. God does not change the test. If you're failing a test, you're going to keep failing it until you finally give up and pass it. And then you get to take another test. <laughs> but God does not like our public school system where, okay, you failed this test, but we've got to move on because most of the class has passed. We're going to the next subject. God is a homeschooler who says, you're going to keep taking this until you finally learn the lesson and pass the test. And that could be anything. In most cases, it's learning to give grace and forgiveness to people. Because most of our problems is just that. I get mad at somebody and I'm not going to give them grace. Why? Because they don't deserve it. Of course they don't deserve grace. If they deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. It would be, it would be called wages. All right, it would be called wages if they, if they earned my forgiveness. But the grace says, I'm going to forgive you even though you don't deserve it because that's how God deals with us. He forgives us when we don't deserve it. He forgives us before we ask for forgiveness because that's what he does. I've heard so many people say, well, I'll forgive them when they ask for forgiveness. That's not God's way. That's the world's way. God says forgive them. You have to be broken and contrite in your heart to be able to do this. Once you learn it, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, it doesn't mean you forgive somebody and, and just say forget it and, and let them do the same thing over and over and over and over again, but it does mean you forgive them and you don't hold it against them. And that's the hardest part, yeah. not holding something against somebody, otherwise you haven't forgiven them. It's a bad thing to do something nice to somebody just because they'll do something nice for you. It's a, you know, invite somebody to your house for dinner just because you know you'll get an invitation to their house sometime for dinner. That is not the God's way of doing things. He says take care of the, the widow and the orphans you know, feed them, help them, not because, because they can't do anything back for you, so you help them anyway, and God is the one that rewards you. In one sense, everything we do is for a reward because God is going to reward us, but it shouldn't be our motivation for doing so. But it is, and it's in the scriptures, you know, do this because you will get your reward from God. I think that's, I speak most of that, so I think our motivations are possibly wrong. Most of us have wrong motivations. Yeah. Most everybody has wrong motivations for what they do. This is why the closer we draw to God, the more our motivations will be corrected. I will do things more for the right reasons as I draw closer to God and become more like Him. And when He teaches me to love people, when He teaches me to be forgiven, when He forgiving, when He teaches me to be more giving, and all of a sudden I start living this way. There's a great blessing in just doing that. Not even counting the rewards that are going to be in heaven, but just touching somebody's life who can't help do anything back. There's great blessing in that. Just great joy in it. Motivation is, you know, is anybody who can think about the future is motivated by something in the future. And humans can think about the future. Animals don't appear to have much knowledge of the future. They can tell the now and they know what, you know, they can be conditioned to do something that if they do this, they get this, but there doesn't appear to be a motivation to go 
start something. Verse 30, I will do these things unto you because you have gone a whoring after the heathen and because you are polluted with idols. So God's going to say these judgments, I'm going to put you under these things because you've gone a whoring after the heathen. Wanting, the, wanting heathen to be your, your close confidants. And I've said this over and over. For us as Christians, we can't isolate ourselves completely from the lost world because then we would have nobody to witness to, nobody to share with. But the lost individual should not be your best friend, your confidant. Because if they are, you're going to get very bad advice. You're not going to get godly advice ever from the world. It's hard enough to get godly advice from other Christians. So pick your confidant and best friends carefully to get good advice. Because I've heard Christians tell people some really ungodly, stupid stuff. Uh, and it's like, who told you that? Well, so it's, well, you need to pick a better friend then to talk to because that's not what the Bible says. Let's share what the Bible says about your situation. And it says you've been going after them and you have polluted yourself with their idols. You're worshiping the wrong gods. You're getting your advice from the wrong people. You're seeking after the world and not me. Very serious accusation. And yet, how many of us as Christians have done just this kind of stuff? Going after other gods and going after the world's advice. I, I love the movie Fireproof where they had that little uh, vignette where he's getting advice from his friend who's a godly counsel and she's getting all the advice from, from the world's point of view. And you know, they're saying the same questions, they're saying the same things and getting totally opposite responses back, one from the world, one from the one from God's point of view. One is going to save the marriage, one's going to destroy the marriage. And you watch this and it is kind of hilarious in one sense because of the way they the way they film it, but at the same time it's a very serious montage of events going on. Because you start looking at it and you see everything that she's being told and you go, how many times have I said something like this or have I heard something like this being said? And then you hear the other side where he's getting good biblical counsel on how to save his marriage. Yeah. And I use that one just because marriage is a big deal in, this, in our day and age. You know, get three, five years in the marriage, have a hard time, and you, know, you don't love the person anymore. And what's everybody tell you? Oh, just get rid of them. Go find somebody you love. That, and the sad thing is you'll hear Christians say the same stupid activity instead of saying live with your commitments and learn how to, to love each other as God tells you to be glued together and live together and stay together. You know, and we look at this, who is our counsel? Who is our God that we're seeking? And he says, I'm doing this because you're doing the wrong, <laughs> wrong things. And you have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will give, her, give you her cup in your hand. And what happened to Samaria already, we've talked about last week, is that when she went into captivity. She had been totally judged. And, is, and remember, Samaria never had a good king, never had positive in there, and, and always had idolatry worship. They never followed God during their existence. And it says, verse 32, Thus says the Lord God, You shall drink of your sister's cup deep and large. You shall be laughed to scorn and held in duration. It contains much. You shall be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of astonishment and, and desolation, with the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall even drink it and suck it out, and you shall break the shards thereof and pluck out 
your own breast, as I have spoken, it says the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, therefore bear also all your lewdness and your whoredoms. So this is God's getting stronger message yet. He says, I'm giving you the same cup that your sister drank out of. Destruction. Destruction. And it says, you shall drink of your sister's cup deep and large or long. Okay, well, this is the idea of somebody taking a very long drink and God saying, you're, you're, you shall do it. You're not going to want to drink this particular cup, but you are going to take a large, long drink of destruction. And kind of an interesting thing, he says, and you shall, let's see, and you shall be laughed to scorn and in, held in derision. It contains much. The cup contains much. Laughed to scorn. Have you ever seen somebody laughed to scorn? You know, somebody just continues to make fun of them. And, and, and scorn is not lighthearted jesting or, or even the kind of thing you might see at a roast where people are purposely trying to make fun of somebody. Because there you know that they're supposedly not being serious. This whole idea of laughing somebody to scorn is you're saying things that are, are supposed to be funny, but they're, hurt, they're hurtful. It would be, you know, picking on somebody because of the way they look and, and just saying, you know, you know, you're ugly, you're fat, you're, your nose is big, your hair is, you know, a mess or whatever, you know, and you just keep at it. And it says, you've been laughed to scorn and had in derision. Derision, that's a strong word. It's like nobody is taking you serious. Have you ever been in a place yourself where nobody's taking you serious? Maybe it might, sadly, it might be because of sin in your life and those non-Christians aren't taking you serious. Uh, in the way of the master, we watched that one clip where the girl's saying, I'm a Christian and all her friends are laughing at her. And then they go, why are your friends laughing at her? And she goes, I don't know. And they go, he goes, have you ever, you know, and then he goes through his, have you ever lied? And they're all laughing hysterically. And she's going, yes. You know, and, but, you know, they knew what kind of Christian that she was was not a Christian, at least not one that lived a Christian life. People look at us and they need to see in our lives righteousness. Doesn't mean we're gonna be perfect. I wish we could, but we're not going to be. But they should be able to look at us and say, in general, this person is trying to live a godly life. They're not lying. They're not out committing adultery and fornication. They're not drunk every week. They're, you know, all this stuff that people look at because, you know, we all know our neighbors. We look around at our neighbors and go, well, let's see, that's the drunkard person over there. The police are always over there because they're fighting with each other. Uh, that house down the street, that person's gone through four wives, you know, it's, uh, or four girlfriends maybe, you know, who knows. You know, that person, you know, we, we know as we look around the testimony of the individuals around us. The good thing should be what is our testimony in front of the people. When they look at my town, they're going, well, that guy's a Christian. I, I know he goes to church. We've never seen the police at his house. Uh, he's been married to the same person who's been living in his house you know, the whole time he's been there. You know, and they look and say, that person tends, seems to be a good Christian. Maybe not perfect. They know that we're not perfect. But they go, when I look there, I see somebody that is a Christian. We need to be praying that that's the testimony we have. Does our, do, do, 
Does our neighborhood and our neighbors know that we're Christians? Is there anything in our life that says we're a Christian? Now, my son made sure everybody in our house knew that he was a Christian because he talked to all the neighbors about Jesus and invited them to church, but I also have talked to many of my neighbors as well. But my son was very active about going out and just talking to neighbors because that's the kind of guy he, you know, guy he is. He loves to talk to people. And he was always willing to talk about God. But so, but do our neighbors know we're Christians? And if they know that we're a Christian, do they think of us as a good Christian or a bad Christian? Because yeah, it's really bad if they think we're a bad Christian. If we, if we live a lifestyle that makes them wonder about our Christianity, that's not a good thing. That's going to be held in derision. Verse 33 says, And you shall be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, and the cup of astonishment and desolation. Astonishment here literally should be horror and waste. Okay, not astonishment, but horror and waste. Bad things happening. All right, and that's exactly what's getting ready to happen. They're going to have a lot of bad things happen. Jerusalem has been besieged. The temple is going to be destroyed. The people are, the king and his people are going to be carried away. And there were three waves of captivity that they're going to go through. And eventually, when Nebuchadnezzar gets done with Judah, all that's left are the lowest of the lowest people. The people that didn't own anything, couldn't manage their money, they could never own anything because of the way they did it. And they're the only ones that are left to inhabit the place because everybody of wealth, everybody of influence, everybody of noble birth, everybody that had a business, everybody that owned a farm has gone into captivity. And this is what's going to happen. He says, you are going to have a long drink of horror and sorrow and desolation with the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall even drink it and suck it out, and you shall break the shrouds thereof and pluck off your own breasts. And as for I have spoken, it says the Lord. He goes, you will drink the whole thing all the way down. And it says, you shall suck it out. You shall drain it completely. There won't be anything left in the cup. You're going to... He's talking, he talks about a long drink. He's talking about you're going to empty this, this cup of desolation. And then, and you shall break it into, into sharp pieces and pluck out your own breast. This is kind of a very graphic, mutilating themselves. But that is what they've been doing. They've been mutilating themselves in the spiritual realm. And God is going to take them out. And Nebuchadnezzar was famous for mutilating his slaves. So many of them are going to be mutilated. And remember we talked about this in the last week where he says you'll lose your noses and your ears and everything because that's what he did is he would pull them by chains strapped to their, hooked into their noses and when that, when it pulled out he'd actually cut their whole nose off. You know, he was a very cruel man and he was very vindictive and he says you're going to hurt yourselves to the place where all of your beauty is gone. And that's what he's telling them. All your beauty is going to be gone and you're, as you drink this cup. And this is what happened to Israel. Their beauty was gone. And they, they were taunted in, in Babylon. You know, you used to sing such beautiful songs in Israel. Sing your songs for us. And it literally, the Israelites, because they did not want to play their music and be forced to play their music, many of the musicians cut the tips of their fingers off so they would not be forced to play God's music for the heathen. And it was a very serious thing. 
that they looked at and, and considered. And it says, therefore, thus says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, therefore, bear you your lewdness and your whoredoms. God says, you have forgotten, you have literally ignored me. You're ignoring me, you've turned your back on me. He says, therefore, bear you also your own, your lewdness and your whoredoms. If we turn our back on God and reject him, he says, cast all your cares upon me, and I, for, for he cares for you. He says, he promises us that he'll bear our burdens. He says, Jesus said, my burden is light and that he wants to give us his burden and take our burden. But if we reject God, he says, fine, you carry your own burden for a while. Your burden that crushed you to mean that you wanted to come to him in the first place because that's what brings us to God. We recognize the burden of our sin, and when we get saved, God lifts the burden of our sin off of us. And I don't know if you remember when you got saved or if you've ever led somebody to the Lord and you've watched just everything about them seem to lighten. The burden of sin just comes off of them. And I can tell you, I've seen so many people, and it looks, many people look like they're a decade younger when, when they get saved. There's just a freedom. They, they stand up straighter. There's a smile on their face. The weight of the world is not on their shoulders. And, you, and, they, just, and they will tell you they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are a new creature. But God says that if you won't let, if you don't, want to pay attention to me, I'll just let you, I'll let you bear that burden. I'll, let, I'll put it back on you again. The, the prodigal son, when he went off and gallivanting in the world, spending all of his inheritance, came back basically a whipped, a whipped dog. You know, he, he had lost everything. He came back totally burdened by all the shame and the pain of all the sin that he went to. And to the point where he just said, you know, he was ready to say, Dad, I just want to be your servant because your servants aren't starving. You've got a roof over your head and they're not starving. I just want to be your servant. Don't, I'm not even your son anymore. I'm not worthy to be your son. And that's all we have to do with God. Come back to him and say, God, I'm not worthy to be your child. Just, you know, just bring me back. You know, give, me a, give me a little uh, shack in the back corner of uh, heaven and uh, some food once in a while and I'm going to be okay. And God says, nope, <laughs> you're my child. You're going to have all the blessings of a child. But he will also let us pile on all of our burden of our sin. When we're looking to get defense, God says, I am your defender. We can hide in God and let him be our defense all day long if we want, or we can get out there and try to defend ourselves and take all the arrows and the boulders and the slings and the arrows and the missiles of all sorts coming at us and get beat up and feel and come dragging ourselves back inside God eventually and and God would probably look at us and say, well, you had enough? Okay, good. You know, here's your grace. We're going to restore you. But, you know, we've all done it. We've all gone out and tried to stand against the, the devil ourselves and tried to defend ourselves rather than let God be our defense. I can tell you, I, I much prefer God being my defense over the years. I'm learning to let him be my defender. Not perfect at it, but learning easier now to let God defend and God, you're going you're gonna, to, somebody saying bad things? Okay, God, you take care of them. I'm just going to go about my business. God, this person doesn't, you know, is having problems? Okay, God, you take care of it. God wants to defend us. And we've got to get our change on who we think God is. God is not this big meanie up in heaven with a big baseball bat waiting for us to poke our head up so he can 
beat us over the head with it. You know, he's not playing whack-a-mole from heaven. Oh, that Christian dared to see over head, bang! That one did bang! That is not God. God is looking for somebody to poke their head up and say, oh, here my child is, and grab them and lift them and, and love them and give them everything. We need to begin to understand who God is. He loves us so much that sent Jesus to die for us while we were enemies. You know, it's kind of an amazing thing. He loved us so much that even before he created us, he got Jesus to agree to die. And as far as he was concerned, Jesus had died before he even created us. How much love is that? I'm going to create these people, they're going to sin, and we're going to buy them back. That is mind-boggling to me. In my mind, I would go, why create these people in the first place if they're going to sin and I'm going to have to buy them back? You know, I'll wait till I can create something that's not going to sin. Who knows what God gets out of it? He knows more than we do, so he's got a reason for it. But, you know, you understand what I'm saying? You know, he had already decided to die for our sins before we were created. Before Adam and Eve was created, he had already agreed to die. That, to me, is mind-boggling. And that's why he's called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world because he had agreed to be the lamb. And as soon as Jesus said yes, the father says, okay, you said yes, I know you'll do it, so you're, we can save these people because you're going to go to the cross and, and die for them. And we know that it wasn't a, a second-rate plan because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, he goes, okay, I'm going, to send, I'm going to send a redeemer. He's going to crush the serpent's head, and the serpent's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush the serpent's head. And by the way, I'm going to sacrifice this lamb because it's a picture of what he's going to do for you, and I'm going to clothe you the, 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 the skin of the animal that I have killed so that you know that the price of sin is death. And you know, have you ever thought about this? The sacrifice that Adam and Eve had made for them by God was one of the other animals that they probably had befriended. They were friends with all the animals. And one of the animals had to die because of their sin. That would be like taking your, you know, your, pet, your pets out and saying, okay, this pet's going to pay for your sin so that you can be forgiven. That would be something most people would not want to see. And yet, this is what happened. I do not believe that God created a special lamb, goat, cow, whatever it was that he sacrificed. I think he literally made it a costly decision. We've just lost one of, one of the original animals that were created, Adam, and it's because of your sin, because I want you to understand how costly forgiveness is. Uh, yeah, before Eve, yeah. But we've got to understand I've seen so many people that have very low attitude about how much, how cheap forgiveness is, and they think that forgiveness is so cheap. It cost Jesus his life. It cost the father separation from his son for a period of time. So the father paid also for our forgiveness. When darkness covered the earth and God, Jesus yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because the father and the Holy Spirit turned their back on him for the first time in all of eternity they were separated they were separated because of man's sin the father hurt and was put into pain 
because of the sin to redeem us. And Jesus paid with his life and separation and his blood. Such a price was paid for sin. And I want to keep reiterating that because I never want people to forget how much it cost to have our sins forgiven. Because I tell you, and we've all, you probably all have met people that think, well, no, God will forgive everything. It's no big deal. And they may even be Christians who think that way. The cost of our forgiveness was extreme. And if we can sin without even thinking about the cost, we've got some problems. We don't understand how precious salvation is. The great cost. Barnhouse said that grace is not cheap. Grace is very precious, but it is not cheap. It costs Jesus his life. It costs the Father his relationship for a few hours with the Son. And great pain being separated. We want to keep that in mind. How much did it cost? The more we start understanding the cost of forgiveness from God's point of view, the better off we're going to be in not sinning. But also, how much does it cost for us to forgive somebody? If somebody has truly hurt us and we forgive them, in financial costs, it's not usually a big deal. It could be if it was financial. But what have we really done when we've forgiven somebody? We're saying, I give up my right to demand your punishment. Okay? You hurt me. I have every right to say that you deserve punishment, but I'm going to forgive you and say you no longer owe for that punishment. You know, why do people have such trouble forgiving other people? For that very reason, they do not want to give up their right to demand that somebody gets punished. If I forgive you, I cannot make you, I cannot go out and then say, well, you deserve to be punished because I've forgiven you. True forgiveness is, I give up my right to demand your punishment. And that's what God has done to us, and that's what he expects us to do to one another. And that's hard. It can be very hard to give up your right to demand, especially if you've been hurt bad. And you've been really deeply hurt. It's very hard sometimes to give up that demand for judgment and forgive. But you know, that's God's example to us, and we need to learn to forgive. We need to learn to be able to forgive. And once we've forgiven, that doesn't mean we, it means we'll stop talking about the person. We'll stop telling others about what they've done because that's trying to hurt them. We'll go, that person's forgiven. I'm going to let them grow. And you know, forgiving somebody is something that will help bring them to God in most cases because they'll see God in action. If they see true forgiveness, number one, they're going to think you're very strange because you've forgiven them without asking for anything in return, not expecting anything. But when you forgive them and they, and they know that they're forgiven, doesn't mean that when you, when you get together, well, you know, and somebody says, well, you know, what, you, know, you know what Jane did? Well, yeah, Jane does this to me all the time. You know, uh, I thought you forgave her. Well, I have. <laughs> yes, I try to make her look bad to other people. What's really bad is when you make them look bad to people who don't even know them. Have you ever had somebody, maybe you've done it yourself, but have you ever had somebody share something bad about somebody you don't even know? It's, I've looked at them, I'm going, and I care why? <laughs> you know, well, they hurt me. I go, well, forgive them, quit. Well, I did. No, none of you are talking about them. You haven't forgiven them. 
very important on this, learning to forgive and giving up my right to make them suffer. Even if they passed away, you need to forgive them. Better off not to wait that long, but, but yeah. But forgiveness is, is a very strong, godly character. And usually in the world, they never forgive. They don't really forgive because they always remember and want you to know that I've forgiven. You know, and, you're, and if you've ever seen that, well, I forgive you. Well, you know what, you know, you've done that to me a hundred times before. I'm not, you know, and I'm going to keep forgiving you, but you keep doing it to me. Well, they bring it back up to you. Well, last time we were together, you did such and such. Well, I thought you forgave me. I have. That's the world's way of forgiving. You know, I'm going to make you feel bad until the cows come home because you hurt me. And I'm going to make sure, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you I forgive you, but I'm going to make sure you know how, how badly you hurt me and everybody else is going to know how badly you've hurt me. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is relinquishing that right to, to make them receive punishment and treating them as if they hadn't done it. Not easy to do. It's a godly event. And it takes God crucifying our flesh and desire to make them pay and teaching us to love and forgive. It can be done. But it takes God doing it. We're going to close in prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you go with us as we go about our business. Give us opportunities to share you with others and that you will be with us in all that we do in your son's name. Amen.